Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. And I notice we have some visitors today. Well, let me say you are about to hear a good Presbyterian sermon on predestination. (laughs) We like to preach through books here. We're in Romans. And this is where we find ourselves in the book of Romans. Now, Romans chapter nine, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there any is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs but of him who shows mercy for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very purpose i have raised you up that i may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens and let us pray together gracious father in heaven we are considering here a high mystery And even as our confession, the Westminster Confession, says that this doctrine is to be preached with with care, uh, not not in a proud proud spirit, uh, but one which adores the mystery, one which sits humbly beneath your word and uh, which acknowledges that we are man and you are God. Well, Lord, let let that be the spirit in which we hear and in which I preach this message. I ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, as you know by now, uh, the Apostle Paul likes to state a doctrine and then he likes to uh, deal with the difficulties. These are not theoretical difficulties. These are the very things that people uh, were were hurling against him. We saw that in chapter three. There were those who were saying, uh, let's see, what were they saying? They were saying, let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. Well, that's the sort of thing Paul is saying here, although he doesn't say, you know, some are saying that, but that's the sense that we have here. There were some that were saying uh, that there is unrighteousness with God, or at least uh, that was the objection that was being raised. And so uh, we come now to the second difficulty in light of the doctrine that is before us in this chapter. The question, which is, is there any unrighteousness with God? The objection Uh, That he anticipates and that he raises and that some were raising. Verse six, you remember, deals with the first objection. It's not as though the word of God has failed or taken no effect. We could put that in a question form or an objection form. Given what you say, Paul, uh, that, that God's word has failed. Well, no, Paul is saying God's word has not failed, not with respect to the Jews, his people of the Old Testament. He says, one, for they're not all Israel who are of Israel. And two, verse 11 that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. That was his answer, which we considered in detail last time. In verse 14, we come to the second objection. Now put in question form. Something I ought to have said in the context of Paul saying what he was saying in verses 6 through 13. He ends with this very striking quotation from the Old Testament. Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Now it is saying that... Or in light of that statement that the second objection now is raised, in essence, is it just for God to do that? Or we could put it in this more provocative form, is it unrighteous for God to do that? 
to set his love on Jacob before he was born and to set his hatred on Esau before he was born, before either had done good or evil, Paul says in verses 10 and 11. Is it just for God to do this? Is there any righteousness, any unrighteousness in God? Is it right for God to set his heart on one and against the other? You see, the question of justice here or of righteousness cuts both ways. The choice of one in favor of the other before either was born. In other words, the choice of Jacob. Was it just for God to do that? Was that fair, seeing that Jacob was not born? It was before he had done good or evil again, as he says. Would justice not require that the choice come after and not before the life was lived? And obviously, as I say, the question cuts both ways. It's more obvious in the case of the one whom he rejects, Esau. Esau, I've hated. Well, is it just for God to do that? For God to declare, even before this man was born, his hatred, his opposition to this man. Why not let him live his life first? Then you can say that. No. God says it before. Well, is there any unrighteousness with God? You see, that's the question that that raises. There's no way to minimize the difficulty of that verse. Not unless we're prepared to ignore what comes next. Again, the verse being, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. Verse 13. For a true exposition of the thought contained in those verses, verses 6 through 13, summarized by the quotation in verse 13, again, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, must carry with it the question posed in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? In other words, it must bring with it the suspicion somehow or other that this is unfair. But every way in which men have tried to reduce the difficulty of that statement make this question altogether unnecessary. You see, what so many do with the statement, especially Esau I have hated, is they make it fair in the eyes of men. And in doing that, they totally uh, ruin and make unnecessary the course of the argument. No, we've got to state it as, as fully and indeed as provocatively as we possibly can. And only then can we be sure that we are following his argument. We have to state it in such a way that we make this question necessary. Wait a second. Is that just? Is that righteous for God to deal with men in that way? But having framed the issue in this way, the answer is very forceful. Certainly not, Paul says, or may it never be. The question he asks, is there any or is there unrighteousness with God, is asked only in order to set it aside, only in order to show the folly of the question itself. Very similar to what he says in chapter three, verse five. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. That's really the key phrase there. Oh, this is a human thought. This is human reasoning, he says. This is how men think. And it cannot stand up to God. The human reasons, the human questions. It must utterly be rejected. Certainly not. And so I would say here, what I said about the first objection. Has, God, has God's word failed? Well, here, the question is, is there unrighteousness with God 
if ever it should seem that our position leads to the conclusion somehow that God's word has failed in the case of verse 6 or here in the case of verse 14, somehow our position has led us to conclude that God is unjust or unrighteous in what he does, we can be sure that our position is false. It's wrong. No, Paul says, and no, I say, God is never unjust. There is no unrighteousness with God, not ever. He's never unrighteous. He can't be. He's God. All that he does, all of his ways, all of his being are all together and always righteous. You see, when you begin to think like that, when you begin to think or even just the inclination of the thought begins to form in your mind, you're just speaking like a man. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're talking about. You're dealing with things that are too high for you. And so we could anticipate what Paul will later say when he asks the next question. Why does he still find fault in verse 19? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply to God? You see, Paul is putting man in his place and he'll continue to do that. He'll continue to say, you need to understand your position. Your position is one of dust and his position is one of exaltation and heavenly glory. He's God, your man. That's the real way to deal with this kind of objection. It's to realize our position and his. It's to see how wrong the question itself is. But then we see he goes on to answer it anyways. He asks the question. He shows us how wrong it is to ask the question. He'll do it again in verse 19 and 20. And yet in both cases he answers the question. He still does. Why does he do that? Why does he answer the man who's saying, is there any unrighteousness with God? Or later on, why does he still find fault? Well, not as though to give credence to the question, but to underscore, to make absolutely clear how wrong the question itself is. He answers it in order to demolish it. And notice he answers both sides of the issue. First, uh, again, seeing uh, verses 14 and 18 as flowing out of verse 13, he asks in verses, or he answers in verses uh, 15 and 16, what God was doing when he set his love on Esau. Was the, or Jacob, excuse me. Was it right for God to do that, to set his love on one? And then in verses uh, 17 and 18, he looks at the negative and he says, well, was it right for God to set his heart against Esau, the other? And so there's two answers to the question, is there any unrighteousness in God? And the first answer to the, to the, answer to the question is found in verses 15 and 16. For he says to Moses... Now, just stop there. Notice the same method when he comes to the second answer, verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh. It's clear that Paul has only one way of dealing with these kinds of objections, and it is to reason scripturally. He opens his Bible. He says, well, have you read your Bible? Do you know what it says? That's a very good method, obviously. If only we can prove our contention is what God actually said the case is really settled right then, right then and there. The real difficulty, as you know, is to be sure that we are arguing scripturally. Do we really know what God has said? But if we do, if we can be sure, as Paul was, that we understand the message of scripture, well, then we really don't need to be uh, in so many difficulties about our position, as so many seem to be. And so here I would remind you of the importance of scripture. I realize the subject before us is difficult. Uh, in some sense, we could say, is there any 
greater difficulty than to consider a verse like Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Before either was born, before either did good or evil, I had already made up my mind for one and against the other. In a sense, you could say uh, these words demand some explanation. But do you realize that it was God himself who said this? It wasn't I who said this. It wasn't Paul who said this. It was God who said this. For he says to Moses, for the scripture says, what's he saying? He's saying this is in my opinion. I am setting forth before you the very words of God. And in that sense, we could say, supposing that we believe that the Bible is God's word, the difficulty is already removed. Here are God's own words. Obviously, if there is any difficulty that remains, it lies with us and not with God. Well, what did God say to Moses? He says this, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. You see, again, it was God himself who said this. Whatever difficulty we have in understanding the meaning. Surely we can say at the very least, God was right to say this. There was no unrighteousness in God's words or in God's heart because he is God All that he says, all that he does is right. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. There's, if you like, the righteousness of God before our very eyes. But it's important for us to see why he said this. What led him to say this? Well, it would take a bit of time to unpack this. But he said this in response to the golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32. And God said, in essence, to Moses, uh, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy this people. And twice Moses pleads with the Lord, both in chapter 32 and in chapter 33. And he says, oh, Lord, do not destroy this people. Remember them for the sake of the fathers. It's very similar in many ways to what is in the heart of the Apostle Paul right now. Remember the Jews for the sake of the fathers. He's pleading for them. He's interceding for them. Oh, Lord, show me your favor. Go with us, he's saying. And then he famously says in in chapter uh, 33, uh, verse 18, I believe it is, show me your glory. That's verse 18. And in response to that, the Lord says in verse 19, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whomever I have compassion. You see, God is manifesting his glory to Moses. And the way in which he he does that in the setting of him interceding for the people and for the nation. And what God meant by this. Is that his own mercy and compassion are at his own disposal to give. They belong to him. They don't belong to man. Man doesn't have any claim on these things. But do you see. It's not a question of righteousness. That's not what Moses was asking for. He was pleading for mercy not righteousness. Nor was it a question of justice. If it were that, then Moses wouldn't have anything to plead for. If it were purely a question of righteousness and justice, then surely we can say God would have been right to go forward with his intention to wipe the nation off the face of the earth. That is justice. The sinner getting his wages. But you see, God is addressing Moses not on the question of justice, but on the question of mercy and favor and grace. And the question is this, will God be merciful to a sinful people? Will God be merciful to a sin? That's Moses question. And the answer that God gives to the question is, I will be merciful 
because it is my nature to be merciful. But because I am God, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, he maintains his sovereign right in this. Of course, he will be merciful. It is of God's very nature. It's who he is. But because he is God, his mercy will be dispensed according to his good pleasure. We could reframe the question a little bit differently. To whom will God be merciful? Not will God be merciful, but to whom will God be merciful, if any, seeing that all deserve to die? Do you see how the apostle wisely reframes the issue? And we might even say God himself did in speaking to Moses. Well, look at Jacob. And what you see is not justice or righteousness. Read the narrative of Jacob. He wasn't a very good guy. In fact, uh, according to nature, we could say he was worse than Esau in many ways. It wasn't clearly. It wasn't a question of righteousness or, or, or works in the case of Jacob. So what you see in his case is not justice. It's not righteousness. What you see in the case of Jacob when God says he will enjoy my favor. I have loved him even before he was born. What you see is sovereign mercy. Not righteousness, but sovereign mercy. God was merciful to this sinner, Jacob, simply because I state again, it is God's nature to be merciful. And because he is God, he will have mercy on whom he will. And he will to have mercy on Jacob. But do you realize God is saying and Paul is saying here or God was saying to Moses and Paul is saying here in Romans, God through him, man has no say in the in the matter. It isn't for us to decide. It isn't a matter of the human will or desire. It isn't for us to somehow claim that we are entitled to his mercy. You see, as soon as you begin to think that, that somehow or other, Jacob was entitled to God's mercy, that he earned it or deserved it, you've placed Jacob or yourself back on the footing of justice. And that's not where you want to be. To place your footing on, that of, on the ground of justice is to fall under the condemnation of the law. But you see, once you place the sinner and his feet on the grounds of mercy, or perhaps it would be better to say once it is God who places the sinner on the grounds of mercy, well, then it is for God to decide and not man. It is his sovereign initiative to determine whether he will be merciful or not and to whom, seeing that man deserves nothing but Justice, vengeance, and wrath from God on account of sin. Stephen Charnock, one of the Puritan fathers, summarizes or synthesizes these two points very well. He said, it would not be supreme goodness if it were not voluntary goodness. You see, it's in the heart of God. It's in the nature of God to be good. He's good. He's loving. He's merciful. But it wouldn't be supreme goodness. It wouldn't be divine goodness if it was something that man thought somehow or other he was entitled to simply by birth. No, it's a voluntary goodness. God will determine. God will decide. And so he concludes the Apostle Paul in verse 16 by saying, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It being the question of mercy or of justice. Uh, excuse me, of salvation. Salvation is not a matter of man. It's a matter of God altogether. 
the matter in the matter of God's mercy. It isn't man's will or actions that matter. It isn't the fact that man wants God to be merciful. It isn't what man does. Again, as soon as you begin to say that, you are suggesting somehow or other that man is entitled to it. You've placed him on the on the footing of justice and he is undone. It's not a matter of man and his desires and actions. The only thing that matters, Paul says, is God's own will, his sovereign determination. What determines this matter of mercy is God's will. As the apostle says in Ephesians chapter one, verse five, he says, having predestined us to adoption by as sons, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That is, in essence, what Paul is saying here. The, the thing that determines everything is the good pleasure of his own will. Salvation, in that sense, is entirely and exclusively of God who shows mercy. Verse 16. The choice he makes, by the way, is in Christ. We can take that for granted at this point. Romans chapter 5, or frankly, so much of what he says throughout the whole epistle. Romans chapter 8. So much of what he'll say for the remainder of the epistle. In other words, the question of how he makes the decision and how he shows mercy to undeserving sinners is that he chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is in Jesus Christ that we find mercy. But the way that anyone ever got into Christ, the way that anyone ever arrived there in the realm of mercy was because of God and solely because of God. And that is the only reason, by the way, that there is a single person who is saved. Think of it. How did we ever arrive at the position where there is a single believer in the world, a single person who is saved? Is it because of what man wanted or did? Well, then you have to say, in contrast to Paul, it is of him who wills and of him who runs and not of God. But that's not what he says. He says, it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows Mercy, you have to understand that man by nature is opposed to God. And we could even say that God, in relation to man by nature, is opposed to man. There is something wonderful that happens when a man is saved, when a sinner is saved, someone like Jacob, someone like you or me. And what appears to you is not the fact that, well, you decided you wanted to be a Christian. That isn't what appears to you. At least it ought not to appear to you. You're beginning to contend for yourself in that. No, what appears to you is the sovereignty of God in claiming you and choosing you even before you were born. Those whom he, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Those whom he predestined, he also called and so on. You see, the very question of salvation brings us back not to the moment of our conversion, but into eternity past. But as soon as you begin to suggest that man is capable of earning it, you're not talking about mercy anymore. You're talking about justice. So how does any man come into the mercy of God? The answer that the scriptures give is solely because God in his rich mercy and love determined to show mercy to whom he would. That is the only reason that there has ever been a single Christian in the whole world. But then the second answer is given in verses 17 and 18. Admittedly, the more difficult question, he's dealing here with the case of Esau, the hatred of God. You see, the love of God was in the first case. Now we're dealing with the hatred of God or in the case of Pharaoh, the hardening 
of the sinner. But do you notice the apostle doesn't shy away from this either, nor does he find any difficulty in garnering scriptural support to make his case. No, he says, I can make my case just as easily on the other side from the Bible, from the same book. In fact, the book of Exodus, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's Exodus chapter 33. Well, listen to Exodus chapter nine in the case of Pharaoh and what God said to Pharaoh. He said this for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Well, it's very important to understand the true force of the word hardening. It's very similar to the word hate. See it as something that is active, not passive. In other words, we're trying not to empty this word of its true force, unless you're prepared on the other side to empty God's love of its true force. No, give, give the emotion, if we could call it that way. Give this exercise of God's will and heart its full force. This is something God does. This is God hardening Pharaoh. This is an exercise of his own sovereign will. Something he decided to do in eternity. Now he's doing it. Something more, in other words, than just letting it happen. I'm just going to let, I'm just going to give Pharaoh over. I'm just going to let it happen. No, he's active in his opposition to Pharaoh. The same is true in the case of Esau. When God says, Esau, I have hated, he is not, as some claim, stating the absence of love. I'm sorry to say that is what Charles Hodge says. No, no, he's not stating the absence of love. He is stating his full and complete displeasure with Esau and his determination to give him over to destruction. As John Murray says, there's a vehement quality to it, a vehement quality to the hatred of God. It's a holy hatred. And this in equal measure to his love, as I have loved Jacob, so I have loved Esau. There is a balance. The sovereignty of God cuts both ways. We saw this last time. It is seen uh, equally in the rejection of some as in the selection of others. The preeminent consideration in salvation is not man's will, but God's. Why does he choose some? Why does he reject others? Well, his reasons, I'll say this again later, I'll say it now. His reasons are all his own, but it's all of God and not of man in both cases. And yes, in each case, before they were born, before either had done good or evil. Here's where the real mystery and the offense comes in. He determines whom he will harden in just the same way he determines to whom he will show mercy. A determination that is made before the foundation of the world and it is according to the good pleasure of his will. Well, it's sometimes been said, again, in order to lessen the offense of this thought. You see, as I'm putting this uh, before you, if, if you're not at least a little inclined to say, wait a second, if it's just a matter of his will, why does he still find fault? Well, if you're asking that question, then I think perhaps I'm putting it rightly. And yet so often this thought, the hardening of Pharaoh has, has been sought to, uh, it's, been, it's been emptied of its true force. Sometimes it is put like this. One he chooses, the other he simply passes by. He leaves them there. He allows them to perish in their sin. Again, he's just letting it happen. It's something passive. Well, that's true as far as it goes. 
But do you see how this way of putting it does not state the full case? It's not that one is chosen and the other is not. It's more like one is chosen for mercy and the other is chosen for wrath or for hardening. And in each case, it is God who decides, not man. That is the all important point. What Calvin, John Calvin calls uh, the famous doctrine of double predestination, not single predestination, but double predestination. The choice is God's, both in the case of the elect and the reprobate. But you notice in both cases, man is in sin. Again, the question of justice is already settled. What man deserves from God is not in question. Man deserves wrath. He deserves condemnation. He deserves punishment. Whether God shows mercy or hardens man as sin is up to God, not man. But, but, but understand, this is God's disposition with respect to man in sin. You show mercy to a sinner or you harden a sinner. He's dealing with man in that state. And that's the point being made here. That it's up to God and not man. And that he's perfectly just or his reasons are just in doing so. Uh, the whole question of justice really should never have been raised. But if it is, it's easily answered once you see what man deserves. He deserves nothing at all from God. But if God would show mercy to any, that's his right. That's his say, not man's. But if we take verses 6 through 13 and verses 14 through 18 together, what we see is how that eternal choice comes to fruition. You see, in verses 6 through 13, in essence, especially verse 13, Paul is talking about the eternal choice of God. Before the man was born, the one I chose, the other I rejected. In verses 14 through 18, he's talking about how that choice came to pass in time. The one whom he loved in eternity, to him he will show mercy. That's how his love is realized in his life, in time. The one whom he hated from all eternity, to him he will harden. You see, what God isn't doing, I'm saying he's, he's dealing with man in sin, but he isn't waiting for man to sin to decide what he's going to do. In other words, I'm not saying that God is reacting to man. God always makes the first move, if I can put it that way. He's already made the decision even before the man was born, even before he performed the first act. But he is contemplating, if I could put it that way, he is considering man in sin even before he was born. And as he shows mercy to one and hardens another, that is the active outworking of the eternal plan in time. In the case of Pharaoh, he hardens him because he determined to do so in eternity. It is all a matter of his will, he says, verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. There are many ways that he hardens. I don't have time to go into them. You might think of Romans chapter 1, though, if you want to ask the question, how does he harden? Read that chapter. But the point is that the reasons are all his own. It is a question solely of his will. Whom he wills, he hardens. You see, on some level, we have to say, once more, we're dealing with a great mystery. I don't pretend to know or to understand God's reasons for doing so. You say, well, why did he choose one and not the other? Why did he set his love on one and reject the other? Well, I cannot say because he does not tell me. 
I think what Paul says at the end of Romans 11 is very relevant here. Verses 33 through 35. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. You see, if your understanding of what he says does not lead you to say that, then perhaps you're making things too easy. Who has known the mind of God? Who has become his counselor? Who has understood his ways? That that ought to be where you end when you contemplate these things. We're not meant to understand. These things are past finding out. But in all this, his greatness appears to us. It's not a matter of he who runs or wills, but all is of God. It is all a matter of his great purpose formed in eternity, carried out in time, which cannot fail. Let me come now. Well, uh, to, to say a few a few words of conclusion. First, I will say, as I said last time in the cases of verse 6 through 13 in relation to verse 14. If what I said in the case of those verses did not lead us to say, is there any unrighteousness with God? Verse 14, perhaps perhaps we were making things too easy. Well, I would say again here, if what is said in verses 14 through 18 in our true understanding of them does not lead us to ask, why does he still find fault? Well, then again, perhaps we are still making things too easy. Well, why does he still find fault? That's a question for another sermon. But let me make these other points of application. Does this somehow or other negate the gospel call? Well, no, it doesn't. The gospel call, you remember, is the call unto sinners to come unto Christ and be saved. I think perhaps the most precious words that were ever uttered by our Lord when he says, Come unto me, all you who are are weary Uh, And heavy laden and I will give you rest and so on. Come unto me and be saved. Uh, Take my yoke upon you. It's easy in comparison to that of the world. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come unto me. That's the gospel call. That's the invitation of sinners unto himself. And you say somehow or other. Well, that negates the gospel call. Do you remember uh, what I've been saying? What I've been saying about the sovereignty of God? No, no, you don't understand even what Jesus himself said just before then. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Uh, And and uh, verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one whom the, the son wills to reveal him. All I would say here, I can expand this in future sermons. That a a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God does not negate the gospel call. It establishes it. It's what makes it absolutely certain that when the gospel goes out, when sinners are invited to Jesus, many will surely come. Number, uh, Number three. A conviction must be forming in our hearts. Throughout the book of Romans, you see, it doesn't just end in chapter 8, but it goes on through chapter 11. That as salvation is all of God, therefore it is all of grace. The gracious nature of salvation, pure grace, election according to grace, he says, chapter 11, verse 5. That's it. Election is nothing other than the eternal application of the doctrine of grace to sinners. How else can his purpose be according to grace unless salvation is all of God from start to finish? 
As soon as you try to suggest that God chooses us because of what he foresaw or somehow or other we are able to decide for him by free will, you are making it a matter of works. You are making it a matter of him who wills or runs and not of God. And do you see the whole idea of grace is destroyed. Salvation is all of God from start to finish. Number four, do you see not only that this magnifies the grace of God, but that this is what makes salvation absolutely certain? Do you see this doctrine has nothing to do with how we are saved? We are not saved by a belief in election. We are saved by faith in Christ. But it has everything to do with assurance. If you want to be sure of salvation, beloved, you can never be sure of it if you make any part of your salvation something you have done. It must be all of God. It must be a matter of his purpose, his will, which he's bringing to pass, certainly, effectually, powerfully, invincibly. Then you will be sure once you realize that, yes, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and who is there to oppose him, you see. It's a matter of God's will and not of man's. That's the foundation of the believer's assurance. And finally, do you see how this humbles man to the dust? I keep saying this. And I do not apologize for that, for this is the primary application in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Any view of salvation that tends to puff man up with pride is all wrong or makes salvation a matter of what man does. Only a view that gives man nothing to boast in but God is the true one. And that is what tells me that this is the true exposition here. Because it takes all the glory away from man and it gives all the glory to God. And is that your view of things? Is that your view of the gospel? Is that how you understand the grace of God in calling sinners to himself? Do you see, as our uh, catechism says, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and that we cannot do so. We cannot glorify God so long as we make so much of ourselves and our desires and our works. No, Paul says. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That's the idea. Also, verse 11, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. Or as he says at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians he says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in himself. I'm nothing, I'm dust, I'm a sinner. God ought to have damned me. The amazing thing is that he saved me. How can I ever understand it? Except according to election by grace. Is that what you're doing? Are you boasting in God? Especially seeing that those of you who are Christians are saved. Amen. And let us come uh, to the table together.